0: We're building the sustainable materials economy of the future, displacing massive industries worth trillions of dollars responsible for gigatons of CO2 emissions. So industries like steel, aluminum, and copper, we're displacing them with advanced carbon negative materials. And I love everyone else who's making these dirty materials green, but we're not making them green. We're making them obsolete. We're building an entirely new future on industrial revolution scale innovation. We're pretty excited about it.
1: Welcome to the Entrepreneurs for Impact podcast. My name is Chris Wedding. As a former private equity investor, Forex founder, Climatech CEO, coach, Duke and UNC professor, and occasional monk, I launched this podcast to share the entrepreneurial journey, practical tips and wisdom from CEOs and investors tackling climate change. And if you like this content, and you're a growth stage CEO, founder, or investor in climate tech, then check out our private peer groups at entrepreneursforimpact.com. As the only community like it in North America, our members represent over $10 billion of market value or capital aimed at for-profit solutions to the climate crisis. Building a climate tech company can be very challenging and lonely, but it doesn't have to be. All right, let's get started. My guest today is Brian Hassan, CEO of Dexmat, a next-generation climate tech materials company that transforms carbon from an expensive environmental problem into high-value, high-performance nanomaterials targeting two to three gigatons of GHGs reduced through its solutions. In addition, Brian is also the former co-founder and CEO of Third Derivative, the world's largest climate tech accelerator, which has catalyzed over $500 million of investment in over 100 gigaton potential climate tech startups. He's also the former entrepreneur in residence at RMI, a serial entrepreneur with over $350 million of exits to date, and the independent director at Pyrofite Acquisition Corp., a climate-focused SPAC with a $210 million market cap. In this episode, we talked about why this company stood out from the 2,000-plus he reviewed while at Third Derivative, the role of $20 million of non-dilutive capital into this venture, The importance of big ass goals, not being the smartest person in the room because if you are, as they say, then you're in the wrong room. Playing to win versus playing not to lose, they're different. Hypothesis testing and its role in his startup journeys. Why drop-in replacement are magical words. The distinction between the first and the best markets to go after, not the same how his sabbaticals played a role throughout his career, his favorite non-business, non-climate books and why they matter to climate tech, including one anti-recommendation, the first on the pod. Thanks, Brian. Why we need to ask what would need to be true in order for XYZ to be possible. In a sense, how do we have uh, beginner's mind, not experts' mind, the latter being very good at saying why things will not work speaking from personal, hopefully past experience. Anyway, lots more. Hope you enjoy it. And please give Brian and Dexmat a shout out on LinkedIn, Slack, or Twitter by sharing this podcast with your people. Thanks. Brian Hassan, CEO of Dexmat, welcome to the show. Thanks, Chris. Great to be here. Longtime listener.
0: Glad to be on the other side of the mic.
1: Yeah, here, yeah, here. What is also nice about having you on the podcast is that, uh, it's kind of part of our relationship in that here you were in the RTP area of North Carolina for all these years where I am. Then you had to freaking move for me to be like, oh, I should meet Brian. Oh, wait, wait, he was here. What? Anyway, many circles. You're on the show now a friend. Anyway, glad you're uh, glad you're here. So fully agree that the the universe works in weird ways,
0: but very glad to be connected and very glad for our, friendship and collaboration over these last couple of years.
1: Sweet. Okay. Let's, uh, let's go right to a fun, a fun stat uh, that we talked about before press and record in your work at third derivative, gigantic climate tech accelerator program, 2000 plus deals you all looked at. and, And this one caught your eye as having the potential to remove two to three gigatons of GHG's, just by the company, not, not the sector. So those are two uh, big ass numbers, I think would be the, the technical term there, uh, Brian. So dot, 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 where do you wanna take that conversation, Brian? Well, well, I mean, we can start maybe
0: from a position of necessity. I mean, if we're gonna build the sustainable, prosperous and equitable future, we need to be dealing in big ass numbers, right? We need to be aspiring for big ass numbers. We need to be taking big ass swings, big ass shots on goal, uh, and so I've spent a lot of my career trying to find those shots on goal, trying to take them. And, you know, hopefully in this case, really and kind of hit it out of the bar.
1: Now I think some listeners could be thinking, look, man, those sound like numbers too big to be true. And I think, you. you know, look, we would both readily say, yeah, look, m- maybe, uh, but let's, let's swing for it. Right. From a technical, a techno economic kind of analysis perspective possible, to get there. And also, you're not like, see, what age do I pick here to not be super offensive? You're not a 21-year-old newbie, right? I mean, I love 21-year-old newbies, right? But And if you're listening, God bless you all, right? My point is, you've been around the block. You've started a few things. They've turned out well. Now, so, t- tell us about maybe your path a little bit, such that the listeners are more confident in that big potential you referenced. Sure. So Chris,
0: I've really spent my career as a climate tech entrepreneur. So building, leading and scaling disruptive tech ventures, trying to build a sustainable, prosperous and equitable future. Um, originally in my career, these were more software focused ventures. My background uh, was in computer science, and electrical engineering, but over the course of my career, kind of evolving into more and more kind of hard tech, deep tech, mostly U.S. ventures, but a couple of ventures in Western Europe, East Asia, and East Africa. Mostly startups, but a couple of corporate spin-outs as well. And, you know, over the course of that career, had some some failures and learning experiences along the way, but had some pretty good successes too. Created about half a billion dollars US worth of of exit value. And then I've also taken a few sabbaticals over the course of my career. So I took a year off to study global leadership because I thought the energy transition was a global challenge and I really wanted to kind of beef up my own skills there. Um, I took two years off actually to teach entrepreneurship at my undergraduate alma mater, um, Rice University, which was uh, an incredibly rewarding experience to kind of pay forward all the mentorship um, that I've been blessed to have in my career. And then most recently, I've spent two years uh, as the co-founder and CEO of Third Derivative, which rapidly became the world's largest climate tech innovation ecosystem. And there, we we mobilized more than half a billion dollars in more than 100 hard climate tech ventures in, in just the two years that I was there. So very proud of the kind of impact that we have there and, and hopefully are, are continuing to have and will continue to scale up. But uh, you, know, you can probably tell I'm bright eyed and bushy tailed and I'm always seeing the possibilities, but I have the greatest success in my career when I'm partnered up with people much smarter than I am who can pressure test my ambitions, rein me in or redirect me, et cetera. I certainly was doing that at Third Derivative where I was surrounded by the folks at RMI, you know, hardcore climate policy wonks and techno-economic analysts, et cetera, kind of keep us focused. Um, but also in this case, I mean, so Dexmat is the name of the company. It's short for Deus Ex Materia. You know, the solution comes from the, the materials and the, the people I'm working with have forgotten more than I will learn in my lifetime about advanced you know, nanomaterials and, and, uh, and chemistry and, and physics, et cetera. Um, our, one of our patents actually has a Nobel prize winner on it, et cetera. So these people know their stuff and we've been around it every which way, and we've got to We've got a pathway to two to three gigatons. Now there's a lot of risk that we want to achieve it, but it's definitely possible. And shame on us if we're not taking that big, big, uh, as you said, big ass swing.
1: Love it. Let's go back to the the prior ventures. You mentioned, you know, some, some successes, a measly, you know, half a billion dollars of exit, of exit value, but, but also lessons learned along the way. So maybe, maybe, I don't know, tell us, tell us a couple lessons, things that, um, hindsight 2020 uh, you might have tried something different
0: yeah and that's I mean we've definitely got enough <laughs> enough material for many podcast episodes and maybe I can just just focus on one you know we learn a lot more from the the failures than we do from the successes for sure I had a venture in the kind of mid to late teens actually as well I was living in in Chapel Hill just around the corner from you really cool venture behind the meter. Demand management for non-residential buildings. So we could install some IoT devices. We could measure power everywhere. We can control it dynamically. And one of the cool features was we could turn plug loads, so things plugged into the walls, into essentially dispatchable batteries. And actually, I'm really proud. At one point, we helped keep the Texas grid online during a summer heat wave. And obviously, that's, that's a very sensitive subject because the Texas grid completely failed a couple of um, of winters ago, and you know people died. I mean, this is this is life or death stuff. Not just saving a few cents here. Um, And at scale, we could have built the largest virtual power plant in the world. So 55 gigawatts of dispatchable load. But we didn't didn't hit that scale. Uh, We kind of proceeded a little more conservatively. We only raised a little bit of money. We kind of operated more like a bootstrap small business than a really ambitious big-ass swing, as it were. We had a modest success. We had a kind of a soft landing acquisition. But you know, we weren't shedding blood sweat and tears and, and time. You know, the one thing an entrepreneur can never raise more of for a of success. We're trying to go for the big win. And so, you know, one of the big lessons that I take from that is that if your ambitions are big, you've, you've got to play to win, not play, not to lose, if you understand that is the distinction. Yep. So being a little too cautious, a little too trepidatious, we actually um, kind of eliminated some of the, the options and possibilities for us. But the the corollary, I think, is is you've got to surround yourself with people who are also playing to win. And frankly, I was completely misaligned with one of my co-founders and our CFO, who was just much more risk averse than I was. And it caused lots of tension. It caused lots of slowdown. It caused us not to pursue some things that could have been helpful for our growth. But by the way, that tension was there for years while I ran the company. And it was obvious from pretty much the very beginning. So a third lesson is that when there's an issue you've really got to pick your head up and confront the problem. I think, you know, I play American football up to the university level and I have a tendency to kind of put my head down and say, oh, I can just power through this and we'll get to the other side. And you know, sometimes you, you're really better served by going back to the huddle or, and calling a different play and should have done in this case. But the, the output though, was I also recognized through this experience that there were significant structural barriers and challenges to commercializing, deploying and scaling up really hard climate tech. And that's what led me to co-found and lead their derivative as well.
1: Yeah. You know, one thing I either hear or want to hear in that is um, if you have bigger goals, it actually may be easier to achieve them. Yeah. As in like, maybe you're more motivated than you would be with a less ambitious goal, or maybe you're able to attract more slash better talent because your, your target is higher for for those listening, Brian is shaking his head vigorously.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I think there's essentially two equilibrium points, right? There's kind of go big or go home, risk failure, uh, you know, put it all on the line. And then there's kind of protect your downside, but uh, but limit your upside. And it's, you know, we found ourselves kind of in an in-between state where I was really wanting to go big, but we were operating in a way that wasn't, wasn't really compatible with it. And a lot of that was due to that misalignment on our senior management yeah. team.
1: Okay, so we, we've teased uh, listeners for, uh, for a while now. Let's get into the details. What is DexMAT?
0: Yeah, so I mean, DexMAT is a climate tech moonshot, right? We're building the sustainable materials economy of the future, displacing massive industries worth trillions of dollars responsible for gigatons of CO2 emissions. So industries like steel, aluminum and copper, we're displacing them with advanced carbon negative materials. So I have to be very clear. And uh, you had my neighbor here in Boulder, Colorado, my neighbor, Sandeep, on recently with Electra, and they're making steel green. And I love that they're doing it. And I love everyone else who's making you know, these metals, these dirty materials green, but we're not making them green. We're making them obsolete. We're building an entirely new future on industrial revolution scale innovation. We're pretty excited about it.
1: Okay, so let's let's just pick one of those, aluminum, let's say. How does Ural's kind of advanced materials, focus make aluminum obsolete?
0: Yeah, so it's, um, maybe let me just just back up a little bit. So what we actually do is we take carbon nanotubes. So um, today produced with hydrocarbons. We split off the hydrogen, that's great, the hydrogen can go off and um, displace emissive fuels with uh, clean burning hydrogen. And then we use the carbon as carbon nanotubes. We spin them, we process them using a wet fiber spinning process which is similar to Kevlar, for example, into a macroscopic material, a fiber that has a significant fraction of the molecular properties of carbon nanotubes. So stronger than, lighter than, more flexible than, more corrosion resistant than, more conductive than all of these dirty incumbent materials, including, um, and especially aluminum. Um, And it's in a a fiber format. So it may not be obvious to you if you're like me and you're not, a PhD, Nobel Prize winner in material science, like some of the people in our company. It's, it's not obvious how something that looks like a spool of thread can displace something like aluminum or steel, but actually a massive amount, literally massive, amount of the world's materials start in this fiber format. So about a third of global aluminum production is in this kind of wire format. Almost all of copper production is in a a wire format, even hundreds of megatons of steel. You know, if you've ever been on the Golden Gate Bridge, right, you've seen these huge bundles Mm -hmm. of steel wire and cable that are are holding uh, it up. So whenever there's a materials revolution, there are innovations in, construction techniques. So for example, we used to build bridges when we were using stone, you know, with arches underneath, and then we were able to, to start using new construction techniques like suspension bridges once we invented steel. So that'll be the case here as well. But it's important to recognize that even without innovations and new form factors, innovations and construction techniques, there are hundreds of megatons and hundreds of billions of dollars of today's market of steel, aluminum and copper that can be displaced just with a drop in replacement of this amazing material that's better in just about every way, except it's much more expensive. (laughs) And then we're,
1: we're working on that. For now, for now, for now. Let's go to kind of business model and then let's go back to kind of where all this, the origin story, if you will, there is this production uh, of carbon nanotube uh, fiber or thread, let's say as an input, is your old model to actually rev up and produce this? Is it to become kind of an IP player that licenses it out to a, a, a network of manufacturers? What does it look like? Yeah,
0: so our, our working hypothesis today is really to scale up production that we will continue to to own and scale up. And one of the major reasons for that is then then we can really push it. Like we can really push the scale up. We can really push the cost down. You know, as I mentioned, the kind of our, our competition is really these kind of dirty incumbent materials. So the commoditized materials like steel, aluminum and copper, um, but even specialty materials like carbon fiber and Kevlar. And again, we're just better <laughs> in all these different materials properties, except cost. So we're about three orders of magnitude more expensive than those. And we're producing mm-hmm. in incredibly small, um, small quantities. Those materials are also entrenched in existing supply chains, right? So it's helpful that we're a drop-in replacement so we can drop into supply chains without re- having to revamp the entire supply chain without requiring new machinery, et, et cetera. That's, that's helpful, but the cost is still going to be issued for a while. And so, you know, that's why we're, we're making a choice, right? We, we can build, we can build a great business being a niche provider of ultra premium materials for very high-end applications, very expensive materials. We can make a lot of money for ourselves and our investors, but we're not going to have gigatons of impact that way. So we're proactively scaling up, proactively reducing the cost so that we can reduce the price. And even though it it hurts our margins, it massively expands the kind of set of materials that we'll be able to displace, the applications where it can displace and ultimately then the, the gigatons of impact that we can have.
1: Uh, you know, part of what you bring up is the question of uh, what what game are we playing, you know, uh, or what 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 mountain are we climbing? Uh, and obviously, this relates to your business strategy, but but it can also relate to our our career choices uh, as well. Uh, you look, know, you're, you're picking a different a different game to play, right? Uh, yeah, we're we're moving into just because I have an MBA, I have to think in two by two matrices.
0: We're moving from one quadrant of a two by two matrix of you know yeah. incredibly low volume, incredibly high value into um, essentially the opposite quadrant. And that's a that's a hard move to make. It's going to require probably billions of dollars of investment over time. And again, our motivation in kind of maintaining ownership of the manufacturing process rather than licen- licensing it out is then we can drive that investment. We can drive up that scale curve and down that cost curve with speed and purpose rather than kind of relying on others who might not be quite as motivated as bear. are.
1: Sure. Just to stress two of the things you said, one was our working hypothesis, right? I think uh, oftentimes founders, CEOs are expected to have just super high conviction clarity. Those are, those are different, of course. I so said, look, you know, when when you're at a company at your stage, you're, you're figuring it out, right? Lots of hypotheses to, to go test. And I think someone said before, like, you know, like, D- don't, don't be emotional with data, right? It's objective. It's just telling you something and you, you get it and you, you, you change course. Your hypothesis was, was right or wrong, you know? But of course, if
0: someone's or data are telling you something, you've gotta be listening in order to hear it, right? But yeah, what's the expression? Strong convictions loosely held. Right. Uh, I think that applies really well to early stage startup. I, I look at early stage ventures as learning machines, right? Their primary job is learning rapid iterations Testing hypotheses cheaply and, and quickly as they can, but they've got to be moving. They can't be sitting around just you know reading books all the time. Um, the learning comes from moving quickly and and real collisions in the marketplace. And so that's that's going to be a shift for Dexmat. Dexmat's actually been around for a few years. Um, it's raised a lot of non-dilutive funding, but it's really been I would say kind of more academic. And then by me stepping into the the CEO chair, it's really you know it's it's a pivot. It's a commitment here that we're we're committing. Mm-hmm to a much more ambitious narrative, a much more ambitious pathway from small-scale premium materials to aspirational, transformational climate Mm tech. Yeah, another thing... A lot lot of learning on the way.
1: Yeah, I think it's well said. Another thing you mentioned was um, that your product will be a drop-in replacement, which again, for those listening that are working in the materials space... A drop-in replacement, I'm not sure how many words that is. Maybe it's three words. Anyway, three magic words, right? B- versus recreating what dozens of companies in a supply chain do, or are asking dozens of companies in a supply chain to do something different, which is, I don't know, hard, impossible, one of those two. So that's a good lesson, I think, for listeners as well. Yeah. I mean, you can probably do it, but it's
0: yeah, it's gonna be hard for sure. One of the um you know, also, right, putting my investor hat, because I had to put my investor hat on to decide to invest my time and myself into this venture. You know, as an investor, you always look for kind of macroscopic trends that also support what's happening. And and can I answer the question, why is this in the right place at the right time? You know, I've heard, unfortunately, I've been in plenty of ventures that were in the right place at the wrong time, um, usually before their time. And then you see 10 years later, someone come and do the exact same thing and, and really succeed. Amen. And there've been a, a few trends here, right? One is um, kind of the the materials that we're producing and even the input feedstocks, the carbon nanotubes have been undergoing decades now of rapid cost downs. So actually at a, at a steeper curve than solar. And so suddenly they're at a mm. an inflection point where you can build these macroscopic materials that actually are, are sort of tenable by, by customers. They're not just completely outlandish, unobtainium or, or anything like that. The other is that the properties have been improving. So we've been following what we call Pasquale's law. So that we've been doubling strength and conductivity every three years with, you know, almost like clockwork. And so finally the macroscopic materials are good enough that, you know, one kilogram of our material can displace 10 kilograms of steel. And so that closes some of the the cost difference, for example. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, organizations and people are suddenly more interested in the carbon content of their materials than they were even just just a few years ago but one of the key things is this it's really the fact that we've we've invented a manufacturing process um, and a material that drops into these existing supply chains so for example um, depending on construction we can make these materials either incredibly stiff or incredibly flexible um, and so if they're incredibly flexible um, here but your listeners can't see it but I can show you it's kind of like a spool of thread. And it can literally drop into industrial textile machinery. You know, you're in North Carolina. You know, there's a, a strong heritage of textile production there as well. And so, without having to reinvent the wheel, without having to invent new machines, our material can be sewn into shirts for wearables. It can be um, woven into meshes to be used as a substrate or a matrix for composites for the fuselage of an airplane, for example. Um, and you're absolutely right. That just that makes a huge difference if you're. If you're trying to disrupt, <laughs> if you're trying to transform an industry, there's enough work to do without having to transform up and down the entire supply chain. When you can drop in, it definitely reduces some of the friction in that process.
1: Yeah. You know, stepping, I guess, up in elevation for a second, what, like what you just described, right? I want to kind of piggyback that with the conversation I had earlier today with the CEO of a company called uh, Keel Labs, K-E-E-L, and they're creating fiber, for textiles for clothing out of uh, out of Tilton and just relocated from Brooklyn down to Durham as everyone should do. Wink, right. wink. but you know it's like sometimes well, actually most days my wife you know, we will ask each other right how how was your day and often my re- my response is like amazing right and maybe if the kids aren't around like you know blank blank amazing you know and it's it's, it's conversations like these I think like. The, the new possibilities that, that sometimes sound like science fiction. Hey, you, you mentioned earlier, back, back to the ground level now, you mentioned earlier billions of dollars of, of investment required. And I think for some listeners, they may be thinking, well, gosh, you're gonna have to give your company away, right, to, to raise billions of dollars through the, the corporate entity, which is probably not the way you would do it. H- how do you think about dilution and different entities and corporate versus project finance and so forth yeah, to, to bring in the kind of capital that you're imagining.
0: Yeah, so we we definitely think about it in terms of a, a you know, a capital stack with many different flavors of capital along the way. Um, we think it will require billions of dollars, but it's not like it's billions of dollars of all, you know, seed stage equity capital <laughs> or anything to that effect. So I said, we we just closed our first equity round of funding. We just closed a seed round of funding, um, just a, a few million dollars led by a major corporate investor, uh, but also we have some fi- financial BCs in there as well. And, they have the capacity to follow on in additional rounds of equity funding if, if we do that. But before that, Dexmat's really built on the backs of more than $20 million of non-dilutive funding. So it was about $15 million invested into the called the basic science before it spun out from Rice University. And then Dexmat has attracted about $5 million of non-dilutive funding with a pathway to, to much more kind of sense spinning out. As we scale up, as we kind of prove out you know, first-of-kind plants and then second-of-kind plants, et cetera, we ought to be able to attract more debt financing and kind of project financing for those plants. There's increasingly capital available. You know, Jigashaw is doing amazing work, I think, in the LPO, kind of bearing a little bit more risk than maybe just the financial markets would on their own, et cetera, providing a little bit of certainty to motivate additional financiers to step in. So I'm, again, call it a working hypothesis, um, and I'm sure we'll learn a lot along the way and we'll pivot and we'll zig and we'll zag. But our expectation is that we will will probably raise a couple or a few more equity rounds of funding, but they'll be heavily leveraged by additional flavors of capital that don't require us to give up the company. That said, I also have to be clear that our priority isn't to obsessively and greedily claw as much of the equity for ourselves as we can. Our priority is to build and scale this transformational venture to the gigaton scale impact that we you know, believe it can have as quickly as possible. And we may face some trade-off decisions at some point in that journey in which we say, look, we could we could be a little, we could keep a little more for ourselves, but move a little bit more slowly, or we can attract more capital right now. We could spread the wealth around a little bit and actually move a little bit faster. And we don't make that decision until we have to make it. But my bias is certainly that we would make that in favor of moving quickly. That's a, a key value of the company. And, and certainly, you know, probably better than than I do, better than most, that if we can reduce the pathway to gigatons of impact by years, I mean, that has a a measurable impact on our ability to maintain a 1.5 degree aligned future, measurable impact on the impacts and effects of climate change to uh, all communities, but especially kind of most marginalized communities, most vulnerable. So I would say not only do we have a a bias toward it, I, I might even say we have a responsibility to make that decision to optimize for speed and purpose.
1: Mm. Well, um, I'll make sure this podcast only goes to entrepreneurs, not to investors who are like, sweet, <laughs> let's take all their frequent equity. That's well said. Yeah. Look, if, if we build, if we're gonna
0: disrupt and completely displace trillion dollar industries,
1: yeah,
0: investors are gonna make a lot of money, no matter what flavor of their capital there is, yeah. no matter whether they get a little bit or a lot or at this stage or that stage, there's gonna be plenty to go around. This is a very abundant future that we're working toward.
1: Well, as is said, a small percentage of a large number is also a large number. Right? A large number.
0: Well, wow. yeah.
1: you mentioned earlier, uh, Jigger Shaw, uh, formerly at Generate, uh, now at LPO, so the Loan Program Office um, at at DOE for for listeners, changing underwriting uh, criteria to put more money to work a little earlier, as you as you noted, the non dilutive funding, twenty million bucks. Uh, what, what were some of the sources? Like, I don't know, SBIR or NSF or what?
0: Yeah, so uh, SBIR, so Dexman actually began its life as a spin-out from a department of, US Department of Defense grant. Um, and so actually a lot of Dexman's early funding has come from different defense agencies um, in the United States. We have a lot of funding from the Air Force and from others. You know, you might imagine that having material that is stronger and lighter and, you know, more flexible, more resilient, more fault tolerant, more corrosion resistant, is really helpful in the kind of aerospace in the aerospace sector, but we're, we're rapidly kind of growing beyond that, right? It's, we're, we're not a defense company by any stretch of the imagination, but it, that was a very, we'll forever be grateful for the, the risk and support that they, they took and provided for us in our, in our very early stages. More recently, we've been getting a lot of funding from the Department of Energy, from ARPA-E, and actually are, as I say with this pivot from being kind of a, call it a materials company to being a climate tech company, we'll, um, we'll continue to trying to develop sources of non-dilutive funding and support, but to kind of expand our aperture a bit from materials and defense to you know, climate uh, supportive sources writ large.
1: You know, it, it also makes me makes me wonder how many other, you know, spinoffs from maybe DOD, right, uh, tech, have other use cases in, a, in an entirely different sector, if you will. I mean, obviously climate tech versus versus the original intended purposes. Anyway, exciting, I think. I'm going to ask you a question back on the many potential industries which you seek to disrupt. All very, very large industries. How, how do you decide which to target as your beachhead? I mean, it's a, it, it's a good question.
0: I'm the type of person who never says that's a good question because I, I hate kind of qualifying someone's <laughs> question about ability. But it's, it's a good question that we're wrestling with right now. And it's part of our use of proceeds from this round is really by the end the end. Of, uh, of this round to have a really cogent hypothesis of kind of G to M, go to market, um, prioritization, sequencing, et cetera. Um, right now, our we, we kind of think of everything in terms of three phases. You know, today we're in this very niche phase where we're providing material for very niche applications with ability to tolerate an incredibly high kind of ultra premium price point. Um, as we scale up and cost down though, we really ought to enter competitiveness and in much more commoditized electrically conductive applications and so for example let's take uh, aviation as an example so right now we're being used for electrothermal de-icing so they essentially sew our material into the wing of a plane run a current through it, it creates heat and then instead of having to use all these really toxic chemicals um, it de-ices the plane and actually does it much faster and, and less expensive but we're We're not going to have gigatons of impact, just (laughs) a little de-icing application. So as we grow and as we scale up and cost down, we should be able to displace actually all of the electric cabling throughout the plane. And that's literally tons of cabling. And so then not only are we displacing dirty materials with our carbon negative materials, but we're actually lightweighting the plane as well. So it can go farther on less fuel, could be an unlocking mechanism for Electric aviation, which is really struggling with kind of power to weight ratios, et cetera. Um, But then as we really scale up and really get down to kind of cost parity with the equivalent amount of these uh, existing materials, then we really get into structural applications. So then we can actually, you can make the fuselage of the plane out of our material. Today, planes are mostly made out of carbon fiber and Kevlar, so similar kind of fibrous materials, um, but ours is conductive. So you can actually eliminate the entire layer of copper they have to put underneath that carbon fiber and Kevlar to protect it from lightning strikes and just use our material. And it saves uh, tens of tons in that case as well. So it ends up being stronger, lighter, more corrosion resistant, et cetera, but then it also has this massive kind of light weighting as well. Now is aviation gonna be the right beachhead market for us? I mean, that's a long product development cycle, probably not, but the the similar, we have a similar kind of three phase approach in automotive as well and in other areas. Power transmission lines is an area that we're getting uh, increasing adoption in as well. And it's going to be incredibly necessary, right, as we hashtag electrify everything. And so replacing the steel cores and then the aluminum conductors with our material, which is stronger and better conductor than than both of those in ways that not only makes the status quo better, but also that allows you to build power lines with much higher tension and towers much farther apart, which dramatically decreases the cost um, and reduces the likelihood of a sagging line leading to a wildfire et cetera. So they're kind of first and second order, uh, even third order kind of effects there as well. But I, I have to be clear, it's it's almost at the realm of speculation when we think about kind of the, the path market. marketing. So we're doing a lot A lot of our of proceeds is really building out the commercial team for the first time. The team so far has really been scientists and engineers. And so we're doing market analysis, segmentation, a lot of customer development, uh, market development to really you know, kick the tires and test out which are the markets that are really ready for this today which are the markets that are going to be ready tomorrow, but we need to start laying the foundation for, and which are the markets that, you know, <laughs> they'll be around once we, uh, once we really don't need them anymore.
1: I mean, look, it was total, a totally unfair question, right? How do, you, how do you answer that in, like, four minutes? You don't. I, I, I think, j- just to kind of highlight, like, it's super difficult to pick, and you can't pick all. Uh, and the other, maybe, is... Um, like, you know, the first, you know, opportunity, the first yes you get is often not the best, right? Or the, the best mountain to climb, let's say. Let's switch as we do from the company to Brian. Let's start with, uh, tell us one or two things you strongly believe. And those can be business or not business i not business is a little more entertaining and they often translate to business, I think, too.
0: Yeah, and I'm, I think there's a lot of overlap, actually. Certainly for anyone who's designed their life the way I have, which is to be spending my business, spending my life working on things that I'm deeply, that I believe in deeply, that I'm motivated, I'm passionate about. This is a, a topic that I think becomes more salient to me every day and every news article that I read or tweet that I read, et cetera. If we fail to build the sustainable Prosperous, equitable future, and obviously, and I'm an incredible optimist, I believe we'll succeed. But if we fail, I think it will be due to a failure of imagination and and courage. I would say. So I, I grew up in the space industry, right? So I grew up around amazing inventions that taught me that anything is possible, and it's it's not a coincidence that I chose to attend Rice University, where I had the opportunity to play football on the very field in the very stadium where GFK gave his famous moon speech, right? You know, we choose to go to the moon, uh, you know, not because it's easy, but because it's hard. And that to me is really important. But if you have language, it's very important. So you've got to have the imagination to imagine something that seems impossible, but then you've got to make the choice to actually go out and do it. And in this field of climate, in climate tech, in climate policy, there are so many really smart people. In some cases, I think maybe a little too smart for their own good. They're so eager to tell you, based on their depth of knowledge, why something won't work. Mm -hmm. What we really need for a problem of this magnitude and urgency is people thinking about how something could work. Right. And this happened a lot at, um, so at at Third Derivative, we were kind of born and incubated and through RMI. And so RMI was full of (laughs) really smart people and they would publish a report saying, you know, this can work and this can't work. And we at Third Derivative would be, you know, with our boots on the ground, looking at, you know, entrepreneurs and ventures saying, well, actually, you know, it looks like this can work. Um, And and it was a good partnership because then we could have a kind of a bi-directional flow of information. And so, I mean, to bring it to business, I mean, that's that's what we're doing at Dexmount, right? We're not asking, how can we make steel a little bit greener? We're imagining, we're kind of going back to first principles and imagining a future unconstrained by these dirty centuries-old materials. And we're making the choice to do this massive scale up and and cost down. And so, you know, it doesn't have to be climate. It doesn't have to be business. But I think there's a lot, the best of humanity comes at the intersection of imagination and courage. And I, I think there's a deeply held belief of mine, something I try to impart to the people around me, whether my family or my teams and certainly something that I've tried to live by, um, some with varying degrees of success.
1: And I'm imagining the, those responses from folks that are, that are, you know, very smart, they're experts, but they're finding ways to say, no, it's like, well, it won't work because of right. Versus I think a reframing is, well, what if, what well, if. What would need
0: to be true in order for go. this to work? Exactly. Even and, better. and you have those conversations and you ask those types of questions or those types of reframes and you get some very smart people thinking a little bit more laterally and thinking a little bit outside of the constraints of the status quo they're used to. And they come up with some amazing, really amazing things. It's true.
1: It's true. How about uh, if you're, if you're hanging out with your younger self, uh, Brian, give us some advice you pass to him to be uh, pick your adjective, uh, happier, more effective on this journey.
0: Well, I'd, I'd, uh, first I tell him to enjoy the period of his life where he really had a lush head of hair. Uh, I say that as I'm sitting across from, from you, the long-haired monk uh, and me with my uh, my shaved head. But I think, so I've spent my life, I've always been a sprinter. Right? I was a sprinter on the football field, I was a sprinter, and in, in kind of career, I always wanted to be out there ahead of, of everyone else kind of doing something first. And it was, I, I started my first kind of serious um, software venture while I was still in university, uh, took over my first CEO role at at 24. But just as a consequence, I learned a I made a lot of mistakes, right? I mean, I still a lot of bumping around like a pinball, learning a lot through the school of hard knocks. And I'm not, I'm not sure that was all necessary. I I may have been better served by spending some time working for someone else or someone else who really knew what they're doing and really having the humility. To kind of learn from others rather than just kind of going out there and uh, and doing it all myself. And maybe a corollary as well is not just having the humility to work for others, learn from others, but to ask for help as well. You know, there's, there's, we were talking about this before, I think you hit record, but there's so much in this entrepreneurial space of kind of chest thumping and you ask someone how it's going and, oh, it's going well, we're crushing it et cetera. And you know, the entrepreneurial journey is, is challenging and can be lonely, et cetera. And, and Chris, I'm sure you know from the cohorts that you run, that the best learning and the best conversations really have when found, really happen when founders open up and are vulnerable mm. um, with each other. And sometimes they're, they're content learnings and sometimes they're just psychological. It just feels, feels great not to be alone, that there's someone I else look. who's experiencing that same thing. So um, I, I wish I'd kind of learned that a little bit yes. earlier in my life and felt less of a Obligation to be wearing a, a persona that was um, that was always successful.
1: You should have been that that uh, that vulnerable football player, right? That's right. <laughs> hey, uh, how about uh, let's talk about habits and routines? Uh, look, you know, we're, we're recording this in January. T- tis the season uh, to be rethinking these things. Whether it's you know daily, weekly, monthly, uh, d- describe some habits that keep you healthy, sane, and focused. Sure. Let me uh, let me describe maybe a
0: couple that I'm or tried and true, and a couple that I'm experimenting with. Because as you say, it's January and it's the time for, for new experiments. I learned a while ago that I'm a I'm a moving meditator. I don't have a lot of success when I try to sit still and meditate, but I can do some of my best thinking at my best epiphanies when I'm doing yoga, or when I'm running, or I'm out on the the trail, what have you. And so I found myself recently falling into a pattern of always listening to content while I was doing those things. Like I was trying to catch up on all my podcasts or, or what have you. And as a consequence, I was cheating myself out of this great thinking time, this great meditation time. So now I'm, um, I'm having a lot more success, you know, having the discipline, A, to can do those activities earlier in the day so they can, can help get me in the right frame of mind for the rest of the day and B, not distracting myself with content, but really freeing up my mind for um, for epiphanies. The second, I've got, you know, I think we all learned this during COVID um, and remote work. If you want something to happen, you've really got to protect it, put it on a calendar. Um, And I've had a lot of of success putting it publicly on my calendar. Like, this is the time that I'm going to exercise. This is the time that I'm going for a run. So not only does it protect my time for that and my priority for that, but it also communicates that to my entire team. It's one thing if you say, hey, we, at, at this organization, we value work-life balance, what have you. But it's another thing, if the CEO's got it on their calendar, it kind of provides implicit permission for one else to do that. And by the way, it doesn't have to be exercise. i put a nap on the calendar as well um, and be be very glad for it. A couple of experiments that I'm running right now, I just started using software. Actually, you may know Aaron Houghton. He was a, an entrepreneur out of UNC Chapel Hill, had a couple big successes, but found himself still kind of struggling with anxiety Um, So doing a lot of mental health work for himself as a founder and then saying, hey, well, maybe other founders could use this as well. So he's got an app called Founders First. um, That's kind of a a habit development and and mental health app for founders or employees of early stage companies. And I'm, I'm enjoying it a lot so far. So jury's still out, early stage experiment, but Founders First so far seems to be pretty cool. Second... This is an idea I had while we were driving over the holidays to visit family. And I was listening to, you know, greatest hits, songs that I really love, including a bunch of songs that give me chills or, or bring me to tears. And I just kind of get so energized when that happens. So I'm trying to start the day every day with a song that gives me chills and or brings me to tears and just kind of mm-hmm. set my mind state right as I try to go out and do something really inspirational, trying to start off really, really inspired. And so we'll, so far, that's a lot of fun. We'll see. We'll see how that goes with the experiment as well.
1: Moving meditation like that. You know, I was just saying on a, on a podcast recently, there is science saying we, 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 we do think better when moving. Now, you know, some would argue, well, are we supposed to be thinking while meditating? I mean, you know, kind of potatoes, potatoes, right? Your, your comment about always squeezing in content. I can totally relate, right? It's like, all right, uh, I'm, I'm going to the restroom. Well, I, I got to put a podcast in to go to the restroom. It's, dude, it's, it's like three minutes, right?
0: It um, really resonates with me. Yeah, it really resonates with me.
1: <laughs> but but it's, it's like, you know, like if you're, by analogy, if your paper's already full, right, of notes, of color, how are you going to write new stuff there, right, which, which are better at, you need the blank space, right, to, to have those. Oh, boy, we, we can go on and on here. Um, let's, let's go to the next one, only because of time. Let's talk about recommendations, Brian. So, uh, books, uh, podcasts, uh, tools, quotes. What are what are two or three you think folks who li- who are listening might uh, might benefit from? So, first, let me give you a spicy take.
0: Almost everyone on every podcast that's climate related uh, who asks ask for a book recommendation will recommend Ministry for the Future, and I explicitly what do you mean? <laughs> D recommend it? I, I don't recommend Ministry for the Future. I think it's got a great, op- very evocative opening chapter. And then I find it to be frankly kind of boring after that. It it, it has some interesting technological ideas, but then it kind of says, ah, oh, there's this one great, I won't spoil it, but there's this one great thing that we did and that kind of saved everyone. And I don't, I don't think that's really the way things are going to work out. But it, it does paint some interesting pictures of, of solutions that could be out there. I think for a more compelling thing that gets you to the same place, uh, I really like the Expanse series. It's a hard sci-fi series um, set in space. You know, space, the first... Frontier where we, or maybe not the first, but maybe underwater was, but the the great frontier where sustainability is really important. And like reading the Expanse series, that's where I first learned about cell cultured meat, for example, and a number of other technologies that actually now are starting to play a really prominent role in the kind of pathways for uh, for climate tech. From a kind of a leadership standpoint, I spend a lot of my time thinking about how is my leadership going to be a force multiplier that helps us achieve goals. I'm a big fan of the work of George Kohlreiser, um, his original book, Hostage at the Table, because um, he was a former police hostage negotiator, applying some of those principles to psychology and, uh, and leadership. And then his, I think his more re- recent book called Care to Dare. It's all about secure-based leadership and how as children, we're kind of programmed to take risks, to risk pain, like learning to walk. We might fall down because we know that We've got a parent or a caregiver who's there to pick us back up. We've got a secure base nearby. It becomes so ingrained in us that even as adults, if we want people to take risks, we need to make sure that they've got a secure base on which to, to take those risks and take those big ambitious swings. So it's important mm-hmm. for you as a leader to create that environment for your people. It's also important for you to create that environment for yourself if you want to be a big, bold, ambitious leader as well. So love that work. Podcasts about going slightly off climate topic. I big shout out to Azim Azar's. Exponential View podcast. spent a lot of time, um, a lot of our work at Third Derivative was trying to think, how do we exponentialize the work that Third Derivative is doing? How do we exponentialize the work that many of these promising technologies could have? And obviously that's a lot of the work that we're doing now at, at Dexmat as well. And so Azim does a great job of staying on top of the technologies and the kind of trends that are happening and really help you see around corners of what's coming next. But if I if if I could leave one thing that I think is really important for ambitious climate change makers do, it's not, it's going to get out of the the climate sphere and get out of the, you know, self-help books and in the business books, et cetera. And it's really just to keep yourself inspired by reading really awesome fiction. So I, I talked about imagination and courage. And so for me, I need to go back frequently to books that kind of inspire my sense of imagination and courage. And so I go back frequently to the Hobbit um, the Alchemist, I love. Uh, I'll go to Calvin and Hobbes. Like, just an incredible childlike sense of uh, of adventure and, and magic. And if you're like me and have small kids, you can actually, there's a lot of opportunity to do double work here because the number of the animated Films out there have these themes. Moana is one that I love. Now, every time, it's it's also one of the songs that I listen to to give me give me chills, like the "How Far I Go" song. And she's she's imagining, you know, a future out beyond her island, and she has the courage to go, take the the bold risk to go out beyond the the barrier reef, etc. And it's just, uh, I find it so. And by the way, it's all in the name of sustainability. I find it so um, so resonant.
1: If if only there were video to to accompany the. Uh... The hand motion, uh, along with your enthusiasm, uh, Brian. My, my, my Italian heritage will come out in. Yeah, and, and that's, out your right, that's right. You, you mentioned that, uh, yeah, well, you you, you asked for two or three. I'm going to break the rules. I'm an entrepreneur. Rings very true at our last climate CEO retreat. You know, as, as I try to kind of gather the talking CEOs back to the agenda, back to sit down, you know, didn't listen too well. And one of the, like, yo, Chris, the reason we don't listen is because it's a bunch of entrepreneurs. We make our own rules, baby. I was like, That's I know, job. but I'm trying to help right anyway. Well said, well said. Hey, uh, let's let's wrap up here. Uh, final words, uh, Brian, this can be, you know, call to action. Uh, who do you want to hear from? That kind of thing, what you got?
0: And so by the time this episode hears, we should be public with the announcement that we've just closed around the funding. We'll be hiring like crazy. Um, My approach to building a team is generally less focused on the specific roles that we think we need today, because by the way, those will change tomorrow, um, and more focused on just building an incredibly talented team. So we have a strong bias for humility, curiosity, diversity of perspectives and experiences and and networks, and certainly mission alignment and objectives. So we'd love to hear from people who are inspired by our mission and, and want to be part of it. Um, we're also already hearing from funds about a potential next round of funding. So uh, if there are investment funds that would <laughs> like to you know, completely disrupt some incredibly dirty industries and have the imagination and courage to support uh, such a transformational startup, we'd love to hear from you. And maybe also in the interest of not just putting out requests, but achieving some kind of karmic uh, equilibrium by putting something out there as well. Um, let me share a piece of advice that one of my sales mentors gave me a long time ago. And I've been finding it very useful recently as we've been closing mm-hmm. around of funding and as we've been negotiating deals, et cetera. Just um, in any negotiation, when you get to yes, when you get to the outcome that you're looking for, shut the fuck up and get out of there. Because if you keep talking, the only thing you can do is move away from yes. You can't make it more yes. Uh, the only thing you do is put the, the yes at risk. So mm-hmm. um, maybe that's a good, in a podcast, when I've been talking a lot. You talk a lot about having two ears and, and one mouth, like yeah. practicing the art of silence. In this specific case, might be appropriate way in.
1: Well, uh, I think the reason I have podcast guests is so that they talk a lot and me and I talk a little, so that mission accomplished. And also, good advice and a hilarious phrasing uh, as well. Hey, look, Brian! Thrilled that uh, that you found uh, a Dexmat. Thrilled that third derivative is 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 crushing it and hundreds more companies to be to be scaled there. Uh, look, man, uh, rooting for your all success. Thanks a lot, Chris. We'll um,
0: we'll take all the rooting we can get. We'll take all the luck we can get. You know as well as I do, the, the path to success is non linear. It's um, it often has a lot of, of luck. It often has a lot of serendipitous uh, connections from people who are rooting for you, et cetera. So um, we'll we'll take them all. Much appreciated.
1: Here, here. Cheers. Hey there, it's Chris again. If you want more intel on climate tech, startups, and investors, please join the thousands of other founders, investors, and world changers who subscribe to our Substack newsletter at entrepreneursforimpact.com. Also, I'd really appreciate it if you took 90 seconds to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or give us a five-star rating on Spotify. This feedback is the number one way to draw more attention to the inspiring climate CEOs and investors I get to interview here All right, until next time, keep on fighting the good fights.